Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. Shall we once again pray? Lord, as we stand before in reading your holy word, we once again recognize that this is the exact representation of what you intended to communicate to us. These are your very words. We know that every word of God is pure. We know that your word is perfect. We know that your word is infallible. We know that your word is without error. And so we don't try to cause your word to conform to us. We want to be conformed to your word. So we pray that you'd give us an understanding heart. Give us soil in our hearts, Lord, that is ready to receive with meekness your word. That we might grow by it and be strengthened in it. And we thank you for the blessing upon the scriptures this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 6, again we will read the whole passage beginning in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Paul's last category of instruction in this epistle. First, he taught us our position in Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Then he taught us our walk with Christ here on earth. Now he teaches us about our opposition. He teaches us about our enemy. He teaches us about the nature of the struggle. And the title of that commentary by Watchman Nee helps us understand and remember the flow of the whole book of Ephesians. Sit, walk, stand. That's what the book of Ephesians is about. Sitting with Christ in the heavenlies, walking with Christ here on terra firma, here on earth, and standing with Christ against the enemies that come against us. And so, we desire so much to be strong in the Lord as it tells us in verse 10, to prepare to put on this armor. The title of this message, Believer, Prepare to Defend Thyself. It's the, uh, the second of two messages on this passage, and it's the third in this particular series. And the reason for the title, Believer, Prepare to Defend Thyself, is because the armor of God is made up not of offensive pieces, but of defensive pieces. They are defensive pieces intended to give the believer what he or she needs to be able to stand in the face of the opposition that we face. And there are battles against our position in Christ. And we need armors to, the armor of God to be able to stand 
so that we can remain in our position in Christ. There are battles against our walk with Christ. We need the armor of God so we can continue in our walk with Christ. That's why the title, Believer, Prepare to Defend Thyself. And again, I quote from my own notes. <laughs> sort of weird to quote from yourself, but here we go. This is exactly why we need the armor of God. We need to stand to keep going, to keep trusting, to continue abiding, to continue walking with the Lord as children of light, to continue walking in his, as his dear children, walking in love. We need God's armor to keep serving, to keep giving, to keep growing, to keep living in the new man. We need God's armor to continue maintaining our fellowship with the Lord and our relationship with others, no matter how hard it may get at times and no matter what kind of struggle we face. We need to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit every day. Love our spouses as God has ordained us to do every day. We need to treat others with dignity, love, and truth every day. And this is why we need the armor of God. Because these things are too hard for us, and the enemy that is facing us is too powerful for us. So as we approach this subject, as we said last week, we're going to be very particular. We're going to see that the armor of God is presented in a specific order. And so as we look at it, we see that there are six pieces involved in the armor of God. And just like the Roman soldier in Paul's day put on these pieces of the armor, one piece at a time, so also do we. But the Roman shoulder soldier put on his armor physically. We put on the armor of God spiritually. The Roman soldier used his hands to put on the belt and the breastplate and the shoes and the shield and the helmet and the sword. We use prayer and faith to put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of peace to take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Prayer and faith are the ways we put these things on. So we begin with the belt of truth. We put on the belt of truth. That's where we begin. Verse 14. Stand therefore having your girded your waist with truth. That's the very first piece that has been listed. It's the very first place to begin when we're dealing with opposition and when we're sensing opposition and when we're sensing struggles spiritually or attacks, we start with what's true. What is true? What is real? What is the actual state of things? How do I measure what is reality in this situation? I know what I'm feeling in the middle of this battle, but what is true? Truth and feelings may be very different from each other. And so truth makes us ready to fight. And it's, of course, the truth of the Bible that is in Jesus. Then we move to the breastplate of righteousness. And the breastplate, of course, protects our hearts. And it protects our vital organs. And our hearts are protected when they don't condemn us. And so we have a breastplate of righteousness. We have the righteousness of Christ. We've been given forgiveness. We're no longer under condemnation. We've been justified by faith. We've received righteousness from God. It's like the hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain, he washed me white as snow. That's the breastplate of righteousness. And because salvation was won at the cross, and it's finished, 
True believers are justified, forgiven, and have the righteousness of Christ. This is the breastplate of righteousness. It's not doing something to become righteous. That's not what the breastplate means. It's having received righteousness as a gift, and that's why it's in the past tense. And this protects our hearts. It protects our inner man. It protects our emotions. It protects us from Satan's attacks. It protects us against false guilt. It protects us against condemnation. It protects us against a hypersensitive conscience, which the devil can easily use for his purposes. And through the breastplate, we're kept from the plague of feeling that God has something against us or that he's angry at us or he is blaming us or he's expecting much more out of us than we could possibly give back to him. The breastplate of righteousness helps us realize we're not perfect, but God accepts us in Christ and is changing us degree by degree. Assurance and confidence are the result. That's the breastplate of righteousness. And then we move to the shoes of peace. And good shoes, of course, necessary in warfare. Got to have good footing, got to have protection for the feet. If you're walking on stones or ruts in the ground, got to have a good firm base for your travel. If you're going up slippery surfaces or down slippery surfaces, you need good solid footing. The shoes of the Roman soldier provided all of that. And the feet of the true believer also need the same thing. We need firm footing in the situations where our footing may be real slippery, either going uphill or downhill. We need solid footing because there are many ruts in the ground and there are many rocks in the road walking in this life. And so we need solid, strong shoes as well. And that's what God has provided us. Now what is this meaning of the shoes of peace? It means that the feet of the true believer have been fitted with the readiness which is produced by the gospel of peace. The feet of the true believer have been fitted with the readiness which is produced by the gospel of peace. And how does that work? Well, it speaks of the result of the gospel in our lives. Remember the second piece, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's salvation by grace through faith. That's justification by faith. What's the result of that? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the experience of peace so much as it is the state of peace. The experience of peace is calm in the midst of trouble, calm in the midst of a storm, the inner sense of tranquility that everything is going to be okay. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the state of peace, meaning there used to be a war, there is none any longer. There used to be a fight and a struggle. There is no fight or struggle any longer. God has reconciled us to himself. We are not his enemies. Now we are his children, his sons and his daughters. We've been made right through the gospel. Now he is for us and not any longer against us. He's on friendly terms with us. He's on our side. He has made peace with us with himself. That's what the shoes of peace mean. And this is tremendously powerful for us because we realize that no matter where we go in life or whatever we're experiencing, whether it's a trial or whether it's satanic opposition or whether it's inexplicable 
hard to understand circumstances. We know this. We know that God is for us and not against us. We know that we have peace with him. We know that all is well between God and us through the gospel. Therefore, we can do a much better job of letting him have his way and relaxing through the process. Now, there's a timing attached to the first three pieces. We pointed this out last week. Having girded your waist with truth, having the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the readiness produced by the gospel of peace. The reason it's in the past tense, these three pieces, is because these are things that became our possession when we came to Christ. These are the uh, things that come along with salvation. We came into the truth. We received the gift of righteousness. We were brought into peace with God. Therefore, 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 putting on these first three pieces is simply reminding us of what we already have in Jesus. That's what it is referring to. So as I put them on, I put on the belt of truth. I remind myself of the truth that is in Jesus. I put on the breastplate of righteousness. I'm reminding myself of the righteousness that has been given to me through Christ. I put on the shield of, or the shoes of peace. I remind myself that I have firm footing because I am right with God. I have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now one more thing, and we pointed this out also last week. Who is the truth? Jesus. The belt of truth is Jesus. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. Who is our righteousness? Jesus. That's right. It's always the right answer in church when you're asked a question. Jesus is the answer. He's our righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him to become the righteousness of God in us. Who is our peace? Got it right. Okay, there we go. Ephesians 2, 14. He is our peace who has made us both one, broken down the middle wall of partition which was uh, between us. Jesus Christ himself is in many ways his person and his work, our defense. He himself is our armor, which is why when we put on the whole armor of God, we stand. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The word James used in, in James 4.8, resist the devil, he will flee from you, is the same Greek word that Paul uses here to stand. If you stand with the armor of God, you are resisting the devil so that he flees from you. Why does the devil flee from an ordinary believer? Because the armor that we have put on and that we are wearing is none other than the protection that Jesus Christ himself provides. So the devil in facing us is actually facing Jesus as we're putting on the armor and therefore he must flee because he can't win in hand-to-hand -hand combat with our Lord. So there's our defense. And this becomes very, very practical. So now we come to the last three pieces which we are to take up in the present right now. We're to take up the shield of faith, take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. Again, we want to be real specific about what these things mean. Notice in verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Above all. 
In other words, without this piece of the armor, in many ways, the other pieces of the armor won't do us any good. Above all, we're to take the shield of faith. It's very important. We're to take up the shield of faith for a specific purpose, to defend ourselves against the fiery darts, flaming missiles, if you will, of the evil one. So our question is, what are these fiery darts? What do they represent? How do they work? Well, very simply, the fiery darts are the thoughts and the impulses coming from evil that find themselves in my mind. They are aimed at my mind. They are fiery darts. They are thoughts and impulses coming from evil which come into my mind having been put there from the enemy and by the enemy. Now, no one should be worried about one aspect of spiritual warfare which doesn't even exist. Nobody should be worried about the devil taking thoughts out of your mind or knowing what you're thinking because the devil can't read your mind. In order for the devil to be able to read someone's mind, the devil would have to be omniscient like God is. David worshipped the Lord in Psalm 139 because the Lord knew his down-sitting and his uprighting. He knew his thoughts from afar. That was the basis of David's worship. The devil can't do what God can do. So the devil can't read our minds. He is not omniscient. In fact, I don't even know where the devil is today. He might be in New York City. He might be hanging out in San Francisco. You know, he might be in Tokyo, I don't know. He can only be in one place at a time because he's not omnipresent either. But he has a host of wicked beings that are under him, working for him, and they are the ones that issue these fiery darts. Now, the devil can't pull out of my mind, he can't read my mind, but he can put stuff in it. And that's what the fiery darts are. Now, let me be clear here. These fiery darts are not the result of me feeding my mind with lies or with filth or with junk. If I feed my mind with lies or with filth or with junk, and then subsequently I think a thought related to what I've been feeding my mind with, that's not a fiery dart. That's my own fault. I created the environment for this mental cesspool that's going on within. I did that. That's not a fiery dart. A fiery dart is something other than coming from any origin that I myself had created. And so it's important that we keep our minds pure, of course. It's important that we watch what we're watching and listen to what we're listening to to really pay attention. Very important to do that. But fiery darts are very different from that. Fiery darts come for no apparent reason. And they don't have a time schedule with which we would agree. They come at very inappropriate times. And they can be gross immoral suggestions at times. Things that are not at all part of our character or who we are as people. They can be sudden overwhelming fears or anxieties that don't seem to connect at all with anything real that's happening to us. All of a sudden, we're overcome by some paralyzing fear or phobia that something is going to happen, some impending danger, and it's just a fiery dart. It's not connected to me or anything that I have thought or done. They can be severe 
bouts with disillusionment. I can be so overwhelmed by my circumstances that brings me to the point of despair and in my mind I'm throwing up my hands and giving up. Sometimes that's connected to a fiery dart. Why don't you just give up? What's the use? Do you think you'll ever get out of this mess? You may have even caused this. All these accusations, these are fiery darts. They come from the enemy. They can be disillusionment with other people. Where all of a sudden, you know, you're thinking about somebody that you love and care about deeply, and then some off-the-wall weird thought comes into your mind about them, and you start playing with it, meditating on it, thinking about it, maybe even reasoning your way through it, and then pretty soon you've got a bad attitude about that person. That's a fiery dart. We have to be careful about fiery darts as it relates to other people. Fiery darts can be sudden impulses to commit some kind of sin. I, you know, this is a horrible example, and whenever I think about it, I shudder, but it helps me to remember what a fiery dart is for me. I remember one time I was driving in a, in a, uh, a supermarket parking lot, and I was just going, you know, three miles an hour maybe, and I saw an older person walking out of the store and going into the crossroom, crosswalk, and this fiery dart came to me. Just gun the gas and run her right over. That was bizarre. And where did that come from? <laughs> what in the world was that all about? I mean, it was a very obvious form of a fiery dart, but I had it. And I, you know, I thought, oh, that's obviously not a good idea. And it obviously wasn't my idea either. I just simply discounted it as a fiery dart and took up the shield of faith and said, hey, wait a minute, that wasn't me at all. That came from another source. They can be even powerful darts about the reality and the truth of Christianity. They can come even in the form of wild, impossible-to-explain dreams, which have no basis at all in anything I've been reading, listening to, or watching. Now, if I have a weird dream or some off-the-wall crazy dream where, you know, I'm Rambo or something shooting up the, you know, the landscape or whatever, some crazy stupid dream, I usually think, you know, when I get up in the morning, I think, okay, what movies have we been watching? I haven't watched any Rambo movies. I haven't seen anything violent. I haven't thought about anything. I just realized, hey, you know, that was just weird. That was just weird. I'm not taking credit for that. That didn't come from me. See, the devil tries to freak us out. He tries to freak us out. I, one of my favorite little anecdotes, I don't even know if it's true, but I like the story so much, I wish it were true. I hope it's true. It's a story of Martin Luther, the, one of the fathers of the Protestant Reformation. If you remember this story, some of you may have heard it. He's sleeping in his room one night. He's in a sound sleep with his face facing the wall, on his bed, and he feels this evil presence entering into the room. So he wakes up, he raises himself up on his arm, he turns around and looks and sees the devil himself. And he says, oh, it's you. And then turns over and goes back to sleep. <laughs> because he refused to be intimidated by a force that couldn't hurt him. 
And he wrote in his hymn, The Mighty Fortress is Our God, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, The Prince of Darkness Grim, We Tremble Not for Him, His Rage We Can Endure, For Lo, His, uh, His what? Doom, doom is sure, one little word shall fell him. And uh, I like that. So we just don't accept these kinds of things, these fiery darts. What we do is we take up the shield of faith. And that's the way we defend ourselves against them. Now think of the fiery dart. It's been launched. It's a shaft that has been launched from some sort of a machine. And it's covered with tar on the end of it. And the tar has been lit and so it's it's ignited and it's flying through the air and it's on his way to me that's the fiery dart the flaming missile take up the shield of faith and what happens i quench i put out i extinguish the flaming missile of the evil one it still may hit the shield but it won't do any damage because there's no fire it might land on the ground and tire, tar might get on my clothing, but it won't do any damage because it's been extinguished by the shield of faith. The shield of faith quenches the fiery darts of the wicked one. So what, how do I do this? How do I take up the shield of faith? Well, those of you that were involved with the Truth Project, you remember this question that Dr. Tackett would ask repeatedly. Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Remember that question? Do you believe that what you believe is really real? The shield of faith is saying, what I believe is really real. In other words, I believe what I believe. That's what the shield of faith is. Wait a second, I'm being, I'm being attacked. This fiery dart says, I'm no good. I'm worthless to to everyone and worth nothing to anyone. That's the fiery dart. Wait a minute. What do I believe? Well, I believe Jesus died for me. I believe that the God the Father has done something in my life to make me worth something. By faith, I realize I'm righteous in Christ. That's what I believe. That's the truth. Shield of faith is up now. Because I'm believing what I believe. I'm resting in what is true. And the fiery dart is quenched. That's about as simple as it gets, just believing what I believe. I believe a lot of things, but I don't always trust in what I believe in. The shield of faith is trusting in what I believe in. You see the difference? I love the story of Jesus telling the disciples to get into the boat. Get into the boat. We're going to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So they obediently got into the boat to go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But you remember the story, the severe winds rose on the lake, storms, the waves were getting large, the men in the boat, the apostles, some of which had been fishermen in their former lives before following Christ, they were all afraid. They thought they were going to die. And they said, Lord, help, save us, don't you care that we're perishing? I mean, they were really, really afraid. But the shield of faith would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, what do I really believe about this journey across the lake? What did Jesus say? Jesus said, get in the boats, let's go over to the other side. He didn't say, let's go under to the other side. He said, let's go over to the other side. So the shield of faith would say, wait a minute, 
Here's my shield. Wait a minute. What do I really believe? I believe that the Lord Jesus will somehow get us to the other side even though there's a storm. Because he said, let's go over to the other side. That's what I'm putting confidence in. They're be believing what they believed. You see the difference there? Believing what we believe. Now, if you had interviewed any of those apostles that day before they set out on their journey. Uh, Peter, can I ask you a question? What is your opinion of the Lord Jesus? Well, I think he's the son of God. Do you think he's capable of doing extraordinary things? Absolutely. I've seen him do incredible things. I've seen him raise the dead. I've seen him cast out demons. I've seen him... I mean, he's an amazing individual. He's the son of God. Peter, do you think he can get you through a storm out on the lake of Galilee? Oh, I'm sure he could. I've never seen him do it yet, but I'm sure he could. That's not a problem for him because he, he's the creator of the universe. He's the Lord of all. That's what I believe about him. Okay, thank you, Peter. Appreciate your insight. Okay, so Peter had the right theology. That's what he believed. It was in his mind. These are the things that were true about Jesus. But the fiery darts put all that to test, don't they? What do I really believe about what I believe? And that's where the rubber meets the road as far as faith is concerned. That's when we say, okay, now what do I believe? What is it that I believe? And then I land on it and put up the shield of faith and I put my confidence in it and it gets through it. Gets me through it. That's how to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. And that's why Paul says, above all, take the shield of faith. Above all, take the shield of faith to recognize the truth that is around your waist. Take the shield of faith to recognize the righteousness that has been given to you in Christ. Take the shield of faith to realize that God is for you and not against you. You have on your feet the shoes of peace. You see. And the shield of faith puts those things into reality in our lives. So the next piece is the helmet of salvation. Another thing we're to take up, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Simple phrase, the helmet of salvation. Now obviously in war, helmet's a very valuable piece of equipment. Helps protect the head from injury, and it gives the soldier freedom to go places and do things he couldn't do without one. Kind of like a football player wearing a football helmet. A football player with a football helmet can run right into a 260-pound linebacker. football player without a football helmet on runs out of bounds because it's not safe to run into 260-pound linebackers without a helmet. And so the Roman soldier, they had helmets on. Now, spiritually speaking, the helmet of salvation protects the head, just like the helmet on the soldier protected the head. But specifically, it protects the mind, protects the intelligence. It preserves the Christian's ability to think and to reason and keeps us from mental confusion, keeps us from mental darkness. In other words, it keeps our head clear. That's what the helmet of salvation does. Now just think about today's landscape, what today is like. Today, there is confusion everywhere about everything although few people will actually admit they're confused. It's the problem is that the human race is increasingly abandoning the Bible as the source of, source of truth and believes that truth can either be
be made up by what we think might be right or that there is no such truth or we add and put in a big pot competing truth claims from all kinds of sources and try to create one um, you know, synergistic type of truth. And that's, that's what the world is doing, and people are very confused. It's perplexity, it's confusion, trying to live life without God and absolute truths. And a lot of times, people who seem to have answers end up being the ones that are more confused than anybody else. Because there are thousands of answers to thousands of questions about all kinds of topics. And great thinkers are busying themselves, you know, publishing their answers, but oftentimes they contradict each other. There's just so many problems everywhere around us, producing confusion. What are we going to do about the economy? How are we going to prevent nuclear warfare? What do we do about poverty in the world's large cities? How do we handle the crime problem, the drug problem? How do we deal with world hunger? How do we have a more stable health care system? How do we fix our crumbling educational system? How do we deal with the problem of radical Islam? And on and on and on. There's thousands of these kinds of issues today. And if we spend any time at all pondering these issues, what does it do to our minds? It just whacks us out. It just tilt. You know, you can't take anymore. Remember the old pinball machines? You know, you're playing the pinball machine. You're trying to get the thing to, you know, hit the flipper. And you're, you know, and then you're frustrated because the ball's not going. You want it to go. So you pull the machine over this side or that side. And then press it on the tilt. Is this had enough? It can't take you anymore. So it tilt. It's done. And that's the way it is with our minds. Our minds just go tilt. It just can't handle it anymore. That's why we need the helmet of salvation. Because that, it, it writes everything for us. It clears it up. And we look at the things around us. And if you're a news junkie, can I pray for you after the service? Because it's just another way to get confused. I mean, all of this stuff, all of this information combined with visual, visual images and sound bites, it's enough to wipe anybody out. And you wonder, you know, how come people can't just understand common sense wisdom anymore? How can we reject the, the sanctity of human life in the human womb, which has become one of the most dangerous places for any human being to be, the womb of its mother? How can we set that aside and spend all kinds of time trying to save the sea otters? It doesn't make sense. Where's the priorities? How can television producers fail to see the connection between their immoral programming and the way people live? Or video game producers fail to see the connection between the video games they're producing that our nation's youth are playing and violent behavior that is coming out of their young lives? And why, why can't people understand this? Why can't our national leaders understand what's basic to every family's budget? We can't spend more than we bring in. These things are just common sense. And, you know, going down that mental road will, again, just cause that tilt. Lots of questions. And if we don't have the helmet of salvation to give us clear heads, we'll go nuts. 
So what kind of salvation is referred to when we talk about the helmet of salvation? We're not talking about the past salvation that has been given to us through the finished work of Christ at Calvary. It's not talking about that. That's already been covered in Ephesians very clearly in chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not really talking about past tense salvation. What we are talking about, and what Paul is talking about, this helmet of salvation that we're to take up in the present, this is the salvation that comes as a result of the hope of our future salvation. It's the helmet of salvation that connects to the hope of our future salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 is our cross-reference here. Paul tells us that for a helmet, we have the hope of salvation. For a helmet, we have the hope of salvation. Titus 2.13 tells us that we're to be looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the helmet of salvation. Now, when I put on as my helmet the hope of our future salvation, my mind gets clear again. Oh, I get it. Now I see all this stuff that's going on in the world, all this craziness, it's heading in a real specific direction. We're winding down human history as we know it. Jesus is getting ready to come back. That's our future salvation. Praise the Lord, the second coming. That's what God has in mind. Okay, now it makes sense. I can put it where it goes. In its proper place. And when we do that, when we fix our mind on the second coming, when we fix our mind on the truths of biblical prophecy, when we fix our minds on the fact that Many of these things that we're seeing in the world today are signs that have been predicted by the prophets and by the Lord Jesus and by the apostles thousands of years ago. We shouldn't be surprised. And when we see all that and put our hope in the second coming of Christ, we have a proper orientation again. Have you ever had that experience? You just, you know, you're on tilt. You're overwhelmed. And then you plop in the CD, and it just happens to be a study on biblical prophecy, and before you're halfway through it, man, everything's clear again. I can see clearly now. You know, everything's clear again. What happened? Well, I got my hope back on. The helmet of salvation got fitted firmly in place. I'm protected once more. That's why we can't neglect biblical prophecy as part of our Christian diet. We can't neglect the truth that Jesus promised that he's going to come again. And I believe what Jesus says. Do you? He said, if I go away, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you might be also. I believe that, and I know you believe that too. That's the helmet of salvation when we put that back on. Just having the memory jogged so that we remember that this world is not our home. Jesus Christ is going to come back one day and make all things new. That changes everything. That doesn't mean we don't do our part to contribute toward the betterment of society and get involved in this thing or that thing in order to be good citizens or uh, you know, just help the world that is in a, around us with the gospel and with social justice and all the other kinds of things that we can do. 
But it does mean that we don't think that our efforts are going to actually do anything in the long run. I mean, I can contribute towards ending world hunger, but I know it won't end world hunger. But I can reach out to individual lives that are experiencing that type of thing. And I can be part of this world that needs Jesus very, very desperately in a lot of different ways. But I don't for a minute think that my or our efforts in these areas is going to provide the ultimate solution. Because I know the ultimate solution only comes when Jesus returns. That's the helmet of salvation. That's the helmet of salvation. Now the last piece of the armor, I could sing a Dylan chorus here, but I won't. The last piece of the armor is the sword of the Spirit. Also in verse 17, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now look at the text. Take the helmet of salvation, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The word translated for word, the Greek word behind the word word, is the Greek word rhema, not the more typical word used in the New Testament, logos. Rhema. And we know logos, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But this is the word rhema. And it refers to the specific and practical application of the word of God by the Holy Spirit being spoken into my human spirit. This is the sword that we take up, the sword of the spirit, which is the rhema of God, his word speaking it directly into my experience, directly into my human spirit. He speaks his word to me in my heart. He speaks his word to me in my spirit. And we hear these words of God as promptings within us. Or their impressions on our minds. What's happening? God is taking his word. And he's making it real to us at that very moment. In that situation. It's very exciting. I'm thinking about a situation. Or I'm in a situation. All of a sudden a phrase or a verse of scripture pops into my mind. That's rhema. That's God speaking to me. Or you're looking at a situation, you see somebody going through something or listening to what they're going through and you're wanting to pray for them and then a truth of God will come into my mind. That's rhema. That's how God speaks. He just speaks his word into my heart and into my spirit as his divine prompting. How do we get better at hearing and reacting to this rhema of God. Well, you remember the story of young Samuel back in the Old Testament? Young Samuel was raised by Eli the priest. Hannah had dedicated him to the Lord. So he was living there with Eli in Shiloh. And one day the Lord called to Samuel and said, Samuel. But Samuel didn't recognize the voice as being the voice of the Lord. So he ran into Eli and said, you called me? No, I didn't call you, boy. Go back and lay down again. And then the Lord again said, Samuel. And again, he thought it was Eli. He goes in. No, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And then the third time it happened as well. 
Now the Bible says that the reason for this is that Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord been revealed to him. That's a very telling verse. Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord been revealed to him. That's why when the Lord said Samuel, he didn't recognize it as the voice of the Lord. So the first thing is, we need to get to know the Lord. That's very important. And how do we get to know the, the Lord? We get to know the Lord through the word of the Lord. That's inferred in the statement about Samuel. Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord been revealed to him. So when we get to know God better through his word, we're much more equipped to understand and perceive the rhema of God when it comes. And how do we do that? And it's very, very simple. It's just through reading and meditating on and studying the Bible. Reading, meditating, and studying the Bible makes me familiar with the voice of God. And especially as I'm studying and reading and meditating on the Bible from a new covenant perspective, from the lens or through the lens of the cross, I'm hearing the Bible being spoken into my spirit as I'm reading it through Jesus, through a new covenant perspective. I love what John Corson says about this. He calls this a new language that, that the, the Bible is spoken to us in. The Bible's, God speaks to us in the Bible uh, through Sunglish, referring to Jesus. Sunglish. He doesn't use English or Spanish or French. He uses Sunglish, referring to the verse in Hebrews 1. God who at various times and in times past spoken to the prophets by the pro, by the, uh, through the uh, fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us in his Son. Well, in the original, it's, it's has in these last days spoken to us in Son. That's all there is in the original text. In Son. So God's speaking to us in Sunglish. He speaks to us through the word through Jesus. In a new covenant perspective. So we look at every single passage in the Bible through the lens and the filter of the Lord Jesus himself. And to use Corson's example, that I love this example, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve have just fallen. They've eaten of the forbidden fruit. And the Lord is walking in the garden and says, Adam, where are you? How do we know what tone of voice God used? Adam, where are you? <laughs> was it that tone of voice or was it, Adam, where are you? Like, I have no idea where you are. Where could you be? Adam, Adam, all the oxen free. <laughs> or was it, Adam, where are you? The heart of a broken father. The broken heart of a father, excuse me. I can tell you that's the answer. Because we read the Bible in Sunglish. That's how we know God, the Father's heart, because that's who he's revealed himself to be through his Son. You see, changes everything. So as I begin to read the Bible and meditate on the Bible and study the Bible and it becomes part of me, I, get be, I, I become more familiar with the voice of God. 
So when there's a situation that arises and I'm driving down the road or I'm pondering a situation or I'm asking the Lord a question and I don't have a Bible in front of me and it's not open to any particular passage and then an impression comes into my mind, is that you, Lord? Yep, that's me. I mean, he has never verbally said to me, yep, that's me. I'm just... But you have impressions on your heart where the Lord speaks. That's the rhema of God. It's exciting. God's speaking to us. And this is a common experience. This is part of the armor of God. We might be afraid, for example. And then we hear this verse being spoken into our hearts. Fear not, for I'm with you. Isaiah 43.5 But we're not sure that the decision that we just made was the right one. We think we may have blown it. And then the next thing we, that pops into our minds, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He'll make your path straight. Just commit it to the Lord. Oh, that was the Lord talking to me. He's calming me down. He's helping me in this thing. That's the sword of the spirit. That's the rhema of God. I've had this one happen many times, struggling with an attitude perhaps about someone. And then all of a sudden this verse will pop into my mind. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Okay. Hadn't read it for a while. Hadn't been thinking about it. But I sure needed it right then and there. I needed the rhema. It defended me. It gave me the ability to use it as a sword. So what we do when we hear this rhema of God is we take it up and we use it. If it's something that requires obedience, we obey it. If it's something that is Helpful to us to minister to somebody else, we use it to minister to someone else. That's how the Spirit works, defending us in so many ways. And he'll make the Word of God practical. And this is what I love about the rhema of God. As we look to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will do his work. Please listen to this. As we look to the Holy Spirit, he will do his work of making the Bible practical in life's circumstances. That's what the Holy Spirit will do. So listen to this. This is wonderful. The burden is completely off of us to make the Bible relevant. That's the Holy Spirit's job, to make the Bible relevant. Isn't that exciting? He's the one that makes it applicable. Now here's a word of caution, and we're just about done. If I think that it's the Lord that is speaking to me, I still have to test it. And this is where we have to be careful. I have to test what I think the Lord is saying to me before I can embrace it or assimilate it. How do I test it? I test it by the teaching of Scripture. I test it by the whole counsel of God. I'll give you a simple example. Perhaps there's a young woman who feels lonely and she would really like to be married and she'd love to be married to a godly man. She's been in this condition for a while and she's not quite sure if the Lord is even hearing her prayers for a godly husband, so she's a little discouraged. And then a really good-looking, together kind of a guy comes into her life, 
pays lots of attention to her, seems to have his life together in so many areas. She feels convinced that God has answered her prayers. But there's a problem. He's not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So she thinks that God has spoken to her and answered her prayer, but he is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So she's got to test what she thinks God has spoken to her. How does she test it? She tests it by the word of God, by the teaching of scripture. And what does the Bible say? Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship does light have with darkness? What communion does Christ have with Belial? What accord does a believer have with an unbeliever? You don't want to get married to an unbeliever. She's got to test the word. And the Bible, the teaching of the Bible, will correct her assumptions. And the rhema of God has worked. Because the Bible itself has corrected what she thought was right. And that's just one example. There are many examples we could use of the need to check what I think is God speaking to me. So here's the conclusion. In this struggle we're in, we need nothing less than divine help. Amen? We need to learn to put on the whole armor of God in the exact order in which God has given to us. Remember that commercial by the American Express company? Don't leave home without the American Express card in your wallet. Don't leave home without it. That's embedded in our minds if we're old enough uh, to remember that commercial. Don't leave home without it. What's that talking about? American Express card, of course. Great advertisement. Well, what's true of the American Express card, according to their ads, is obviously true about the armor of God in the life of the believer. Don't leave home without it. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for your word this morning, Lord. And thank you for the way you speak to us through the Bible. And thank you for the way you speak into our spirits from the Bible. Thank you most of all for the great message of the Bible, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died for our sins and that he rose from the dead and he gave us life. We are most thankful for that because that's the truth and we embrace it as we do all of the scripture. So we pray that you'd continue to give us wisdom to put on this armor of God by faith and to wear it each and every day in order that we might stand against the schemes, the wiles of the devil. And as we're in this attitude of prayer right now, I just want to ask a question. If you're here with us this morning and you've never made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to do so. Jesus talks about the need to receive him, the need to open up your heart and invite him in to be your savior and to be your master. That's what the Bible tells us that we must do. How do you receive Jesus? You receive him by believing that he indeed did die for your sins. And that his death is the basis of your forgiveness. How do you receive Jesus? By believing that he rose from the dead three days after he was crucified. How do you receive Jesus? By a simple invitation, just invite him to, him to come in. Lord, come into my life. 
Make me a new person. Change me from the inside out. Forgive me. The Bible says that as many as received him, to them God gave the power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. So if you're here with us this morning and you've never made that commitment, why not make that commitment right now? And begin a lifelong and eternity-long relationship with the living God. He's the one that made you. He's the one that loves you. He's the one that will forgive you if you let him. He's the one that will make you a different person. He's the one that will deal with your past. He will, he's the one that will give you victory over your destructive habits. He, he's the one that will give you a future and a hope and a life worth living. That's what Jesus will do for you, but you've got to open up your heart to let him do it. If you've never made that commitment and you'd like to, as we're just in this attitude of prayer, would you raise your hand right where you're seated and let me know, Bill, I want to receive Jesus this morning. I want to invite him in. Just raise your hand up high so I can see your hand and have a word of prayer with you. Anyone here this morning, I want to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to believe in him right now. Anybody watching this online or anybody listening to this later, you too. Right now you can open up your heart and you can say, Lord, I invite you in. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead for me. I ask you to become my Savior. I ask you to be my Lord. I ask you to change me. I trust you. You can do that. Right where you're seated, right where you're standing. Anyone this morning? Shall we stand together?